Hello and welcome to the 250, your fortnightly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time, and sometimes the bottom 100 as well. I love when we yabba dabba do that. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well, Darren. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm good. You know, I, I feel like, you know, we've got a good bedrock of a podcast here we can really build on, you know? Um, yeah. Re- uh, ready for raptors applause it oh. doesn't really work does it? <laughs> I, I i don't know i feel that and then it just all just caves There's down a whole to rubble of puns coming isn't it? it absolutely that's mostly what my notes are this week i feel like this isn't a spoiler but the the, the movie promises lots of puns i'm not certain if it delivers for you darren but i guess we'll we'll talk about that later on we're 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 back recording um the, the two of us in person we know how it's spelled but can you tell the listeners, is it the the Darren Warren or is it the Darren Warren? The the Darren Warren makes it sound like I'm a 70s soul singer of some description. Oh, um, the Darren Warren. Um, but anyway, we are talking about the Flintstones. This is your home. This is my home. Um, it's where I live. It's where my children <laughs> where sleep. They sleep. Where they play with their toys. Um Sorry, this is a very long walk for very little water. We are talking about the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. That is a Brian Levant's 2000 romantic comedy. I guess you could kind of call it a period film as well. We are joined by a fantastic guest for that discussion. The wonderful David Monaghan. You know him from GCN. You know him from Business and Finance. You know him from Head Stuff. How are you, David? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I thought I had uh, hit my um, rock pun quota. Um, before coming on, but um, apparently not. Uh, and I'm very excited to dive in. Maybe it'll rock. Nice. You know? Cool. That's good. I, I like that. You're being very assertive. You're not. You're not just <laughs> quarry in this discussion. All right. So. <laughs> Basically, um, I was talking to David. I, re- I reached out to him. I said, would you like to come on the podcast? We'd like to talk about a movie. And I gave him what the lists that we give all of our prospective guests. We give them the lists of some of the greatest movies that have ever been made that we have yet to talk about on this podcast. It's a, it's a list that includes movies you know, like Schindler's List, for example, like Witness for the Prosecution, like Judgment at Nuremberg, crucially important, earnest text. And I also, as a matter of <laughs> pure pro forma said hey look there's a bottom 100 list as well we haven't done as many of those you just probably want to cast your eye over that it's just what we do at new guests don't feel like you have to pay attention and i think that within the space of two minutes of me hitting send on that second list dave's like i feel like we we can talk about the flintstones of eva rock vegas i feel like that's a that's a conversation i want to have so what was it about the flintstones in viva rock vegas that made you go that is the movie i want to talk about (laughs) I guess I have a personal history with the film in that uh, when I was a kid, there was a small TV in our classroom in primary school. Um, and if it was raining, um, we had like a collection of VHS tapes we could run to. The first time I ever saw Jaws was through this. Um, someone had brought in and swapped out the, I think, 15s label with a G label. <laughs> so we, we watched the film. Um, that kid went far. Um, but, <laughs> yeah um but that that was soon uh we couldn't watch jaws anymore because one of the kids when quinn gets uh, <laughs> for someone has to see jaws but when quinn gets bit um one of the kids got very queasy and actually vomited and we weren't allowed to watch jaws so we had to watch um the flintstones in viva rock vegas and i remember enjoying it as a kid and i think that's because my um my brain hadn't fully developed um yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so I, I wanted to kind of go back to it with uh, adult eyes and see if my brain has developed. Um, and uh, I think it has. <laughs> I really did not like it. Do, do you think you've now caught up to Viva Rock Vegas? Do you think that you've finally like, reached a level where you can truly appreciate this it? This is a test that they give to high school leavers <laughs> in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah when... this, this is what, no, this is what the leaving <laughs> The leaving <laughs> search, um, yeah. yeah. And the back glory as well. They're, try, yeah. they're trying to kind of harmonize it across the European Union. Yeah. <laughs> baccalaureate um but uh yeah okay so that that is how you kind of first came to viva rock vegas and had you seen it in in the years since or was it as you said just quite literally you saw it and you're like the, that memory of that child throwing up watching jaws it all just came rushing back and like i need to get this primal kind of connection to, to my childhood was this I think that was it. Yeah, no, um, it, it flowed back like a river vomit. Um, no, uh, no, I was, yeah, I, I caught my eye. I, I remember watching it. I, I very, I remember, I remember seeing Barney and uh, Fred in this kind of uh, weird uh, <laughs> Stone Age uh, Rock Vegas uh, set. I, that, I have a very strong memory of that and I, I wanted to kind of go back. Yeah. This was cinema to um, you. This is what cinema was for this was no honestly at the time my my favorite film was probably batman and robin and you know uh i i watched a lot of what, what i suppose was generally considered trash but i loved it so i yeah um, but this is not one that's interesting because like people are trying to kind of reclaim a lot yeah. of bad films from back in the day so like the scooby-doo films yeah. etc but i never see anyone batting for the flintstones of viva rock vegas so I kind of wanted to go back and see why that might be. And I think I have a good wanna... sense of why that might be. <laughs> I, I want to I say a couple of things. I, I, I think Darren is a defender of um, Batman and Robin. Relative to For, Batman Forever. Re yes. Versus, yeah, Batman Forever. I disagree. I also want to kind of celebrate the child for lasting that long. Like if he was queasy... To get to the point that that uh, that queen, yeah, because there are body parts that wash queen, up on the beach yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Like it's like, and a child gets eaten, but it's like, no, it's a it's the surly saying that, surly sailor. Saying, saying like Quint gets bit probably doesn't give away too much. No, no, I. <laughs> it's no. When that mosquito, he just he forgets to put the mosquito yeah, yeah, lotion exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets a flesh. Yeah. <laughs> He's fine. He marries the shark at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Happy ending. <laughs> Musical number. They're, they're, you, you, you end up with Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfus riding off in a speedboat saying nobody's perfect. Um, <laughs> I'm a shark. Um, <laughs> nobody's perfect. Um. Um, all right. So, like, to, to, to kind of just to situate us in context for this, right? So, obviously, the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, as the title implies, Rock Vegas is a major attraction, but it is the second movie in the live action Flintstones franchise. Obviously, the Flintstones, a classic beloved Hanna Barbera cartoon. Did you have, like, do you have any attraction or any kind of like affection for the Flintstones outside the context of this movie? Is it like you have a kind of a pool of pop culture knowledge and this is part of it? Or is it all like is the reservoir of your love for the Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas? Um, no, I have vague memories of I, I didn't go out of my way. There are a lot of shows as a kid. You know, naturally, if you're a kid, you kind of religiously watch programs. But I would sometimes watch the Flintstones if it was on. Um, I don't have I didn't hate it. Uh, I always found it quite charming, I guess, that they used animals and dinosaurs as um kitchen you know utilities and, and stuff it's a um, living 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's 11, but they don't say that. No, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. What's the spoiler? <laughs> it would spoil, it, would spoil um, it if somebody thought that they were going to say it in the movie and then watch the entire movie and realize yeah. they didn't. So I think yeah, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I guess I, I you know, a wealth of uh, pop culture um, knowledge. But you know, the, the Flintstones was kind of there. And I, I kind of appreciate it as a precursor to things like The Simpsons and was it the first animated sitcom? Um, yep. I kind of like, I guess I admired on that. It was primetime television, yes. like well before the the, 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 Sim- the Simpsons were. We kind of think of like The Simpsons being the precursor to kind of like grown up um, uh, cartoons on television. But but the Flin- 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 uh, Flintstones got there beforehand. But it, 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 Flintstones was huge for me as 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 a child. And I, I was very excited about the, uh, not this movie. The, the 1993 kind of John Goodman, Rick Moranis one. I, I'm not sure I knew that this kind of existed at the time. I mean, I must have. And all, all I knew about this movie, and I couldn't find any reference to it online. Yes. When I went looking. Yes. Was the Stephen we'll Baldwin and his comments about Joan Collins. Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> no, no. But no, I, he, I, I remember that he was really horny for Joan Collins. <laughs> that, he, that he was like, oh man, working with Joan Collins. Um, but um, Did you say hamana, hamana, hamana in <laughs> yeah, a New Jersey accent? I believe so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, get, the, but, but While I, rising several feet off the ground and his feet flapping like wings. I, <laughs> as a child, I had an odd relationship with kind of television shows because I don't especially remember watching a lot of television at the age where I was kind of ripe for Flintstones. Because when, when we were children, it was children that watched the Flintstones yes. and, and, and not kind of uh, adults. Uh, uh, adults. It wasn't like a um, kind of, it was on, you know, Cartoon Network, but it, what it would have been on kind of, I guess. In the early, afternoon, early, yeah, whatever, yeah. as opposed to say Adult Swim or in the evening. But but my relationship to anymore. like, yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my relationship to Flintstones was through these books. There would be like uh, Flintstones books. I remember there was a big uh, like bumper Tom and Jerry book as well. But I remember the Simpsons go fishing and there, the, it would be read. And I think it was one of my favorites to 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 or, or else it was one of my parents favorites. It, it, they, um, I remember one line Barney Rubble. He's asked if he if uh, oh, Fred says he's going fishing and Barney says I'm a bent pin and worm man myself. Um, and then they they and then they go fishing. I guess. Um, well, I mean to, to to put it in in context, Dave David's entirely right there. Like the Flintstones was, I believe, the first primetime animated American sitcom. It was originally designed to this like to nobody's surprise as a ripoff of the, the Honeymooners. Yeah. Yes, to the point where I believe Jackie Gleason considered suing them for ripping him off. <laughs> I didn't but... realize that they weren't real. <laughs> <laughs> like when I find that Fred Flintstone, I'm gonna give him up straight to the moon. Um, but. Um, no, apparently he had to be talked out of it by his own legal team because they were like, you don't want to be the man who takes Fred Flintstone off television. He's a national treasure. Plus, uh, plus he's got real Tony Soprano vibes. Have you seen that Harvey Birdman <laughs> thing? I have, yeah. 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 Um, but the, the thing is basically, so it, it began airing on TV in a primetime slot. It was originally seen as a show that was aimed at adults. That's why there are, say, Flintstone cigarette commercials that we will include in the show notes. Uh, in the post, like during the credit sequence, their sponsors included like cigarette companies and beer companies. So Fred and Wilma would shill like nobody's business. Uh, but apparently it was like later on. Michelle. 
I like it. I like it. They <laughs> hey. would like nobody's business. I like it. You got to get those sweet clams. Um, <laughs> but um, they... Ba- <laughs> We've hit rock bottom. <laughs> you got to earn some of that yabba dabba dough. But you have... Sorry, that is from the movie. I can't take credit for that one, unfortunately. Um, but you do have that kind of... You, you Basically, around the third season, they decide that they want to retool it to be towards children. That is when you have stuff like, say, uh, the... What's the what's the daughter's Pebbles name? Pebbles, Bam Bam. Pebbles is born, and then Bam Bam is adopted. Actually, which is interesting because you have this idea of dealing with like in this animated sitcom the fact that Barney and uh, Betty are infertile, and it's something that is made, I believe, explicitly text in the nineteen ninety four film. But it's something that's kind of dealt with in the way, and like you have all these interesting like barriers that the show transgresses, like where it's the first animated show to show a man and woman sharing the same bed on American television. Uh, which is shocking. In fact, they actually, I believe, retroactively started putting them in separate beds after the first season because they were like, "That's maybe America's not ready for this yet." But you have this idea of it being a show that was, you know, boundary pushing and kind of transgressive in a variety of different ways. But now gets kind of sanded down when you think of it as a kids' TV show. And again, things like the addition of Pebbles, the addition of Bam Bam, the Great Gazoo, who's a character I am <laughs> sure we will discuss at great length in this particular podcast episode. He arrives midway through the penultimate season and is seen as the harbinger of the show's doom. But basically, it, it weirdly becomes this this childhood classic and. Here, here's something I dug out, like from from the Irish Independent, uh, a survey done by Don Deal. Um, so you know it's 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 legit. <laughs> what? Uh, it's legit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, totally above board. Um, like is certainly. This a, is this about like whether people use their feet for <laughs> driving their cars? <laughs> no, the Flintstones is apparently Ireland's favorite children's television show. Okay. You're which is yeah, no, like Bosco survey is the says... fourth. Bosco ranks fourth. <laughs> Oh, my God. So it's like Sesame Street is second, I believe. Um, but yeah, and basically, obviously. Surprising. Yeah. This is kind of a strange list. And like, I feel like Bosco is kind of on people's lips. But did did people, I'm, I'm really not convinced that people liked it as much as they think they liked it. Bosco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Bosco as a, very as memorable. a celebrity. I think yeah. like, that's the weird thing. I think Bosco as a pop persona is something that everybody loves. But I think there's only so many times you can see Dublin Zoo behind the magic door. without. <laughs> I, think, I think I've spoken about this before. Myself and my brother deciding at a very young age that we liked, uh, that we were watching Bosco ironically. <laughs> but we were definitely like far too into it. <laughs> um, like my, my, I remember my grandfather died. I was very young and I was annoyed because there was a Bosco road show <laughs> that, that I was supposed to go to instead of a funeral. Um, it's a very touching story. We can all deal with grief in our own way. Sorry, David. Oh, no, it was just, I, there were, there were never reruns of Bosco. I was aware of Bosco as a sort of an Irish pop cultural icon, but I never actually sat down and watched a full episode. It's um, grueling. <laughs> it really does. It really does try. Or um, you, you have to. You have to settle in yeah. and commit to it. I think. Um, all right. So, but yeah. So that that surprised me. The Flintstones is Ireland's favorite. Every time Bosco is on, I will sit down and watch the entire thing <laughs> from beginning, <laughs> from to, beginning end. to end, whatever point it's at. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as a deep lore, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you never know what's going to be behind the magic door. I mean, it could be Dublin Zoo. Um, <laughs> But you, you have, yeah, so The Flintstones is apparently Aaron's favorite TV show. I do love, by the way, small piece of trivia. It was obviously the longest running primetime uh, animated TV show until The Simpsons came along. 
It was, you know, famously like the most popular uh, primetime animated sitcom, animated uh, sitcom until The Simpsons came along. When Fox considered cancelling, this is kind of interesting. When Fox considered cancelling The Simpsons uh, in its twenty second season, so that is what now, like ten years ago, um, there was a suggestion that Seth MacFarlane would revive The Flintstones as a primetime TV show to fill that slot. But it fell apart when they decided to let all the Simpsons cast members record from their living rooms for large amounts of money. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just kind of interesting that Flintstones has this kind of ongoing relationship with, like, the Simpsons. And the question of, like, how this became something for kids. Because there's this... Well, yeah, we'll talk about it in the spoiler zone, but both... David, did you watch the the Flintstones, the original Flintstones movie, the 1994 Flintstones movie? Yes, I've seen it. Um, I, I didn't rewatch it for this episode because I can only take so much, but I do have a, a working <laughs> memory of certain aspects of it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm aware that John Goodman. Yes, um, it's a scene where John Goodman and Rick Moranis are almost lynched. Um, it's oh yeah, 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 yeah. I do yeah, know. It, yeah. It's it's yeah. it's a like again, it, it's a movie that feels weirdly stuck between two stools in terms of being a, a movie for adults and a movie for kids. And I think maybe this movie falls into that gap as well. Um, before we begin... I feel like the, 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 the Rick Moranis, John Goodman movie was 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 a lot hornier, right? Well, like, <laughs> a lot hornier than this like one? a good bit, no? Than this? Oh, well, I mean, Black it Britain. does have Hale Berry playing Sharon Stone in it. Yeah, Which yeah. I think was a formative All moment that- for... Friend, boys of a certain age friend friend of the podcast kyle mclachlan yeah oh actually we can say that yeah we, <laughs> we can say we that can actually say that <laughs> anyway um but yeah kyle friend of the podcast kyle mclachlan um playing a very similar role to non-friend of the podcast or yet to be friend of the podcast thomas gibson yeah uh, in this movie as well i mean replacing yeah. his role from showgirls <laughs> um pretty much like <laughs> directed by paul verhoeven director of robocop obligatory robocop reference and we got there very very quickly um and okay normally at the this point in the show this is where we would go over just a little bit of production history a little bit of back context however what's really interesting (laughs) about the flintstones and viva rock vegas is that as both david and andrew have separately alluded to this is a movie that does not seem to exist like it's it's not a movie that is subject to any attempt to reclaim it, to contextualize it. There are no oral histories out there explaining <laughs> how it came to be. There are no retrospective interviews with cast and crew members about their time working on the movie or what it came about. The only cast member I could find who talked about it at length was Alan Cumming, which I'm sure we will get to uh, inevitably. But like this is a movie that just leaves no pop culture footprint whatsoever. And again, this is a movie that feels like the only... The little breadcrumb I can find on this is that, like the original Flintstones, it was almost like willed into being by Steven Spielberg, by him just pointing his fingers. The original Flintstones movie, uh, the casting of John Goodman, that happened when he was making the film Always with Spielberg in 1989, uh, starring Richard Dreyfuss and Holly Hunter. Apparently at the first table read of that movie, he stopped in front of the entire cast and crew, pointed at John Goodman and said, I want everybody to know... That man is my Fred Flintstone. According to Goodman, he did not want to make a Flintstones movie. (laughs) He had never at any point in his career suggested that it was an aspiration that he wanted to pursue. He feels like he was sandbagged in it because you don't say no to Steven Spielberg. And the movie kind of just willed itself into being the fact Spielberg's like... We have this guy, he should play He should play him. I'm making a movie with dinosaurs, you can probably recycle some of those as well. It'll all work out. 
And apparently what happened with the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas is that Flintstones comes out in 1994. It gets terrible reviews. It gets slated, one might say. Hey. Hey. Um, it, however, makes a shed load of money. Um, and basically... Chalk it up as a success. As, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think you can. Um, but, uh, nice. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, basically, you, you, it, it makes a shed load of money. It does really well in the States. It does particularly well internationally, uh, which is that weird thing about the Flintstones, where it is the most American thing ever, but somehow, like, Europeans love it even more. It's like Clint Eastwood. Uh, it's very difficult to explain. Um, <laughs> but it makes a boatload of money. But everybody involved with the film is like, that movie was a stinker, right? Everybody, no, Nobody's like, I'm proud of that movie. I stand by that movie. <laughs> Critics didn't get it. That's what the problem, we made the movie for the fans. That's why we made the movie. <laughs> nobody, nobody gets behind the Flintstones. Everybody runs a mile from it. The four, the three of the four leads effectively, like immediately rule themselves out of contention. Uh, Rick Moranis retires from acting. Um, Liz Taylor retires from acting. John Goodman <laughs> who's still afraid of that Spielberg point is like, ah, maybe I'll get around to it and maybe I won't. Who knows? So there's a sense that they, nobody wants to make a, another Flintstones movie. However, apparently the development story on this is that Mark Addy, who's fresh off the, and you know exactly where this story is going. Mark Addy is Full fresh. Monty. What? F- fresh Monty. off the success of the Full Monty. He's going to, to the US. He's breaking out. People are beginning to notice him. In fact, one person notices him in particular. He's got a stack of scripts on his desk. He's written through them. He's like, they're making another Flintstones movie? I don't want to do that. And his agent says, that one came with a note from Steven Spielberg. He wants you to be his Fred Flintstone. And Mark Addy was like, damn it, I guess I've got to be Fred Flintstone. (laughs) Um, Interestingly enough, Spielberg's name is nowhere on Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. It's so strange. Which is quite impressive. <laughs> like, like what, a, what a troll to, to kind of say, hey, I want everybody to make this movie. See ya. <laughs> He's gone. They made a point. Yeah. I think I remember they made a point of it in the first one as well. Uh, they called him Steven Spiel Rock. Rock. <laughs> like the rock something like that. They went at the very start. Yeah, yeah. Steven Sp- You're right. He isn't mentioned. He isn't referenced. They, they, they also. Oh, no. Well, I, 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 I suppose it doesn't spoil anything, but they, 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 they make fun of Jurassic Park as well. Kind of. They do. They have a little bit of a joke there. They, they make a, the Jurassic World joke before Jurassic World does about how passe it is to live in a world where dinosaurs are just everywhere, <laughs> which maybe in hindsight does feel like a bit of a dig at Steven Spielberg. Jurassic Park 3, eh? 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 But uh, yeah, basically the movie comes out. It garners extremely negative reviews. Uh, Although, and I quote from the Wikipedia article here, some critics considered it an improvement over the first film. (laughs) It was a box office bomb. It grossed only $59.5 million against its $83 million budget. Uh, It promptly died and was forgotten about, completely erased from history, buried under mountains of rubble, until we decided we were going to talk about it this week. (laughs) Um, So... I guess before we start talking about the movie in a bit more depth, three questions to get us started. So, David, mm-hmm. do you think The Flintstones and Viva Rock Vegas is one of the worst 100 movies ever made? Okay, don't get me wrong. This film is bad. <laughs> very, very bad. But <laughs> um, That's a promising start. <laughs> but I think for a film to make it onto a list of the top 100 worst films ever made, it has to be 
notable or memorable. Um, like with Plan 9, you can say like the blatant disregard for the rules of filmmaking, make it stand out, etc. But there's nothing interesting or memorable about the Flintstones and Viva Rock Vegas. It's uninspired. It's predictable and it's forgettable. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's nothing that makes it stand out. So um, I think if a film has, to, if a film is going to be on that list, it has to be somewhat notable. Uh, we we should uh, the, you're you're almost quoting Roger Ebert's review of that movie verbatim, despite having presumably never read it. Just I just want to read the opening paragraph here. This is an ideal first movie for infants who can enjoy the bright colors on screen and wave their tiny hands to the music. Children may like it because they just plain like going to the movies, but it's not delightful or funny or exciting. And for long stretches, it looks exactly like hapless actors standing in front of big rocks and reciting sitcom dialogue. Mm. So, tough question here. Is this better or worse than the first Flintstones movie? Um, well, my memories of the first one are quite scattered. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Well, I suppose the first one had Halle Berry and Colin McLaughlin. And uh, at least they bring a certain charm. <laughs> Uh, this is a very this is very devoid of charm, so maybe it's worse. Jo uh, Joseph Barbera apparently said, "I personally think it's much better than the first one," <laughs> which gives you a sense of like how they were marketing this. Don't worry, we know the first one was crap, but I think he was in it as well. <laughs> wasn't 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 like Hannah and Barbera played like cameos where yeah. there are scenes where you show like several like very very old people. Yes, <laughs> conspicuously old. Yeah, people. yeah, and and I think I, I think those are like in a world where people live to like fifty two. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't it? Oh, and they make that joke in both. Yes. They do. Yes, yeah. they do. My my father ate red meat all his life, and he lived to the ripe old age of thirty eight. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I mean, obviously, like the father, like Wilma's father, Colonel Slaghoople, is played by Harvey Corman, who famously voiced the Great Gazoo in the original television series as well, and the Dick the Bird in the first film. Uh, and Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think this is one of the worst one hundred movies ever made? No, I well, I, I suppose it depends on how how you're kind of it, there. There's not there's nothing to get like too kind of annoyed about. And also, it it didn't end like Rick Moranis's career. <laughs> um, uh, like that, the the first movie has that, but I I, I, I <laughs> or Elizabeth Taylor. That I, love, I love that we're ranking the two yeah. of them. It's the the <laughs> well. Um, yeah, and and I I I would say this is worse than the first one because the first one was beloved by me at the time, and I will probably never rewatch it. Having 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 rewatched it for this, because of course I did, I would say you're making the right choice. <laughs> just keep <laughs> keep it as you remembered it. Yeah, in, in your head, just just <laughs> freeze that moment in time, trap it in amber. Like some sort of uh, dinosaur type <laughs> DNA, but yeah, yeah. Um, and how and about for, you? For myself, n no. Um, I, I. This is not a good movie. The first one is also not a good movie. <laughs> I think the first one is probably worse and is probably like more notable for being worse because it's. This is a forgotten movie. Nobody cares about this movie. This movie doesn't <laughs> exist. It feels mean to pick on this movie, whereas like. The 1994 version, like, has Spielberg's name on it. It's a big blockbuster. It made a shed load of money. As a culture, we should not allow ourselves to forget that we let that happen. You know, we let ourselves off the hook when we blame Viva Rock Vegas. 
um, instead of going right to the source uh, and kind of acknowledging that the first one is yeah. at least as horrible, but also somewhat more confident and better remembered somehow. We shouldn't forget. Never. Should never, forget. never take it for granted. Nice. Um, (laughs) like it's the way to kind of like um, please Darren make lots of (laughs) terrible 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 puns um and an avalanche of puns a rock side of puns but uh yeah no and and again yeah i i kind of i think there is some interesting stuff to talk about this movie i think somebody i was talking to somebody recently and they made the observation that i i'm not sure if it was a compliment it probably wasn't but that I make every movie that we talk about sound like it is the most important movie in the history of cinema. Uh, it, it, it took some real effort, but I think I can maybe get there with Viva Rock Vegas. But we'll, we'll, we'll see how that argument goes kind of kind of in a moment. Uh, but David, is this, whether as a child or, or looking back on it as analyze, one of the worst 100 movies you have ever seen? Probably not for the reasons I mentioned like i think i'm going to forget about this film again in like a month (laughs) (laughs) like i there's nothing i think at least if when i talk about films i don't like at least i can back them up i I back my points up i i don't know if i'll be able to remember anything about this because it's entirely just forgettable and not noteworthy in any way. Oh God, I'm really going hard. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't really generate any passion, any vigor, any anger, any fire. No. Yeah, like either way, like I, I just feel nothing, Darren. <laughs> yeah, it's like that was a solid ninety-one minutes of my life. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely happened. Yeah. I can certainly say that it exists. It is certainly a movie. Yeah. Somebody certainly put a camera and a bunch of actors, and there was a script. Uh, famously, uh, this movie was the first movie was written by thirty-four writers. Thirty-four writers worked on the first Flintstones movie. That's why that movie is such a gem. Because they spent so long honing it with so many different teams. So they take a turn writing a word each. Like... <laughs> they just went round the room. Like it was a round robin yeah, kind of thing. It's exquisite chord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, where they, yeah, where they basically, um, it's like, that's, you, you need 34 people in a room to get that many rock, you know, puns. That's, that's what you need. It's like a groundswell of kind of talent, basically. I don't think, I don't feel like there were that many. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, okay, so yeah, that's that's a no from yourself. And Andrew, what about yourself? Had you had you watched I, this movie before? Actually, no, no, I had never seen it. So like, I feel like the 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 first question is kind of like attempting to think objectively about the movie: is it good yeah. quality or bad quality? The second is like, how do you feel about it? Yeah. And and it really didn't annoy me. Like I was watching, and I could tell that it was bad, but it wasn't. It didn't leave like a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, um, I did have. Um, uh, Viva Rock Vegas um, uh, 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 stuck in my head, which is a shame because I'm I'm not sure I'm a fan. <laughs> but uh, um, but um, uh, sung by Anne Margaret um, from who sang uh, probably most famous for Bye Bye. Oh Birdie. wow, I love Anne uh, Margaret. The, the title, yeah, uh, the title music, which is interesting. <laughs> I wonder if uh, she retired. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that she doesn't. She also do. Um, am I wrong, or does she do uh, always something there to remind me? Okay. I, I may. I may be wrong. By the way, I, here's here's a quote do from I go like to the fact machine. You go. You go to the fact machine and uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
But like I, here, like again, this is part of what I find so fascinating about this movie is that, that again, the fact that the first one was like a big deal and this one just doesn't exist. And the fact that it has, I think what, again, friend of the podcast, Scott Mendelson has described as fool me twice syndrome. His argument is that like, if you, you can make a really bad movie and it can make a shed load of money because people will go and see it because they love the concept. But you're generally screwed then if you try and make a sequel to a really bad movie, even if that sequel is good. The examples that he cites would be things like, say, the first Laura Croft uh, Tomb Raider movie with uh, Angie Jolie, which is terrible. And the Cradle of Life, which is the second one, which is apparently decent, I am informed, with Daniel Craig. Uh, and that bombs because the first one was horrible, even though the first one made a lot of money. The recent Suicide Squad and The Suicide Squad are perhaps a prime example of that, where the first one makes $700 million and the second one bombs. Um, and like, I love that you can tell, like Hollywood is so, so, so bullish uh, on like the Flintstones, Viva Rock Vegas. And so honest about what it's doing, which is quite remarkable. The first Flintstones was real big, though it got mixed reviews, said Paul Durgarabedian, president of the box office tracking firm Exhibitor Relations. But the movie was review-proof because it provided entertainment for kids and there was a nostalgia factor that encouraged parents to come. So we are very excited for Viva Rock Vegas. Like, it's like, this movie doesn't even need to be good. This movie's probably terrible. It's probably a terrible sequel to a terrible movie, but people are going to come out and we're going to make money. I love how open and transparent that is. And then he's like, and then he goes on to cite, while Brendan Fraser became a star on the box office strength of George of the Jungle, his appeal didn't help Dudley do right. Then you have Paul Durgabedian pause and note to the interviewer, I think people weren't as familiar with Dudley do right as they were with George of the Jungle. That's what went wrong there. Not that the movie was terrible. <laughs> it's just that they didn't recognize the thing. But yeah, sorry, did you, are you back from the fact machine? I, I did, I did. I made a big mistake there. It was Sandy Shaw, I was thinking of. Sandy Shaw. Not, um, I do, I do like Anne-Margaret, um, but it, 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 uh, uh, I was attributing a Sandy Shaw song to her. Similar eras. I mean, it makes sense. And again, like, it, it, like, that's the weird thing with both this movie and the previous one is that they're, they're part of that wave of 90s nostalgia for 60s pop culture. Like the first one comes out the same summer as like Forrest Gump, for example. And, you know, obviously this comes out, you know, the year after, say, Pleasantville. Gary Ross was one of the 34 writers who worked on the original Spinstone script. Um, it's this weird thing where it's like we're going back and we're being nostalgic for 60s pop culture and recreating 60s pop culture. And like we're recreating like this this kind of sitcom that is itself an invocation of the honeymooners and and how strange it is to watch a movie in the year 2000 that is a parody of a 1950s Elvis vehicle in the style of a 60s primetime cartoon and it's like you know what this is what the kids really want it's <laughs> it's very strange to like just think that process through as like where pop culture was in the year 2000. I hope they don't make uh, movies based on what kids actually want. <laughs> Have you ever seen what, what yeah. like, kids watch, watch on YouTube days. and stuff? <laughs> like you very young children. Yeah. yeah, there's an algorithmically generated pregnant Hulk. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> They're wild. I like wild is not the word I would use to describe. They're, like marriage. I mean, 
I suppose they are making movies like that, you know, where they have like, there's a lot of kind of intellectual properties yeah. and trying to fit as much kind of different intellectual properties in, in, in a movie as, as, as you possibly can um, was, was the thing there, I guess, for a while. I mean, it, ar- it arguably still is. I mean, Fred Flintstone's last theatrical appearance was in... Oh, uh, the WWE with, like, John Cena. And You're close. There, 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 there is, is a, a Smackdown Fred crossover. Uh, Smackdown movie. There is a Flintstones... And there's also Scooby-Doo meets WWE yeah. as well. Um, because they're uh, all owned by... Um, yes. Warner Brothers, Hanna Barbera, Warner Brothers, and yeah. and Warner Brothers um, put all their IP recently in Batman. No, DC. No. Oh, um, Space Jam. Sorry, yes. I, I feel like I'm failing a test. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. 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 It doesn't help that I was pointing at you. I apologize. That was very aggressive. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's fine. Um, I was like, uh, yeah, but yeah, Space Jam. I haven't seen this. Uh, you, you don't have uh, to. I don't plan but, to. Like that. That is the last was, theatrical um, appearance of Fred Flintstone is in Space Jam. That's a new crazy. Magazine. And so, we were just talking. I was going to say. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry uh, to interrupt. I was going to say he's also in a um, a Warner Brothers fighting game um, as well. Yes, the the multiverses or whatever it is. Yes, with uh, so he can fight Shaggy and Scooby and Batman and the Iron Giant. <laughs> He doesn't giant. want to be yeah. a god. Um, <laughs> yet, <laughs> it's more about the idea, more about the the image of a thing. <laughs> yes, the, the iconography of the thing, <laughs> and then what the thing means exactly. So we were talking about algae rhythmically, <laughs> and we got out the Space Jam New Legacy. <laughs> and that's just just how it works. And for myself, I think like no, this is not one of the worst 100 movies I've ever I've watched. I don't know if this is the worst <laughs> movie I've watched this year, and it's only the 11th of January as we're recording this. Um, so I do like, I I don't think this is awful. I'm not even I'm not even sure this is worse than the first one. I think like, this is, at worst as bad as the first one. But I think the first one has like one good performance in John Goodman, and I think this has maybe two, maybe two and a half decent performances in it. Um. So, but we'll talk about those when we get the spore zone. And then final question, David, if listeners have not seen the Flintstones of Eve of Rock Vegas or have seen it and have forgotten about it because it's that kind of movie <laughs> would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device no <laughs> um, uh, maybe I, I, I kind of agree with Roger Ebert maybe it's good for infants um, because it's so digestible um, though it might have the opposite effect of those you know baby Mozart speedies <laughs> smarter and, um, but no, I would not. I would not recommend it. Um, it would put you into a fugue state. Uh, do Do you regret choosing? Like, I, I feel really bad that we're going to lock you in this conversation for presumably about another hour or so. But do you feel bad having chosen? Do you regret having said, "I want to talk about this movie"? No, it's like therapy now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. It's, it's good to talk it out. We have to work yeah. it through. Yeah. Okay, and then Andrew, what about yourself? If listeners have not seen the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Um, no, I wouldn't. In fact, I I I think before I left work, um, somebody was like, "What are you doing this evening?" And I was like, "I'm talking about um, uh, the Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas is the follow up to the Flintstones movie," and then they were like, "Oh," and then I explained a little bit. And they were like, oh, I might check it out. And they walked away. And then I was thinking, why didn't I stop them? <laughs> why didn't I say, like, 
no don't yeah, but I, I figured like um like it's a polite thing to say it's like oh it sounds interesting <laughs> as opposed to yeah. them actually doing it they're yeah, sitting yeah, at home yeah. right now yeah. maybe, maybe i don't have to work yeah, yeah, yeah it's like they're, they're popping some corn they're like look i haven't had time to watch a movie in months but this guy at work he recommended the Flintstones. <laughs> he said you didn't have to watch the first like one i didn't recommend it <laughs> He said he said you didn't have to watch the first one to understand it. He's he said he's going to talk about it. It's so interesting he's going to talk about it. <laughs> we can't not watch this. Um, forget about Tar, forget about Fablemans. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And 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 for myself, yeah, another unfortunate no. Do not do not watch this movie. You don't have to watch this movie. I I think you can get the same effect if you watch the first one. In fact, many of the men, much like much of this movie is recycled from the first movie, which is kind of galling um, yeah. in a sense that like with an animated TV show, you understand things like the recycling of animation for like practical purposes. You also understand that if you are writing a sitcom where you have to produce 30 minutes of content on a weekly basis for half of the year, you end up recycling content. This is a 90 minute movie that was made six years after the previous movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Was it? It was six years. The gap was six years, sorry. 2000? Yeah, 2000. Oh, my goodness. I just uh, assumed that this was like two years later. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, nobody wanted to make this movie. Like, this movie, like, again, Spielberg kind of just willed this into existence. um, Just by, like, saying... For no reason. Well, he he saw Mark Addy. He was like, Mark Addy has to be Fred Flintstone. Same thing that happened with the 1994 version. He saw John Goodman and was like, John Goodman has to be Fred Flintstone. And then the universe just kind of arranges itself around that. He's the kingmaker when it comes to kind of Fred Flintstone. (laughs) (laughs) You think when he met with um, John Ford as a kid, John Ford told him how to make films. And then he like leaned and whispered, also make two Flintstones. (laughs) Produce two Flintstones flicks. That's the key to solidifying your legend stuff. Don't have people associate them with you, (laughs) but make sure that they happen. (laughs) When Fred Flintstone's in the picture, it's interesting. When Fred Flintstone's not in the picture, it's not interesting. When you understand why that is, maybe you'll be able to make a good movie. Uh, And Spielberg is still like looking at scripts going, "Eh, I don't know if this is interesting or not. (laughs) So no, no, you do not have to watch the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. All right, then, join us on the other side of the Spoiler Zone. Spoiler Zone. So, David, I feel bad even having, even you knowing this question is coming. What is the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas about for you? Uh, um... I might be, I might be reaching, <laughs> but uh, and, um, but uh, this film and the first film, I, I mean, the plot is almost kind of recycled. But uh, I, I guess it's about class disparity <laughs> <laughs> and uh, love triumphing over uh, uh, money, <laughs> and then realizing what's of value in in the world. It's funny how Fred had to learn that lesson twice. And and in the exact same way, like Fred's arc in both of these movies is identical. And again, yeah. it's identical because it's an adaptation of a 60s sitcom where the 60s sitcoms just recycle plots over and over. But it's somewhat galling when you do it with an $83 million sequel. But the plot of the first movie is Fred is working at the, the factory or working at the, the quarry or whatever. He becomes a patsy for a rich guy who wants to swindle some money 
and in doing so, Fred himself ends up temporarily enriched. As a result of that, he ends up alienating all of the friends in his life before becoming a patsy for a rich asshole who wears like a black like caveman cloth and tie and is played by a like dark haired star of 90s television a raven haired star of 90s television but it's okay because fred eventually learns his lesson reconciles with everybody and exposes the fraud as the fraud that he is and it's it's like why why like why would you do that twice like, it didn't work the first time. Nobody involved in the first film is like, that was a masterpiece, or there's a diamond in the rough, or like, it's a, like, audiences are clamoring to come back and see that again. Why, why do you go, hell, even some of the jokes are recycled. Like, Kyle MacLachlan, yes. Kyle MacLachlan makes the exact same joke about Fred's intelligence that Thomas Gibson does, where it's like, I think at one stage in the first movie, uh, Hale Berry goes, he's not as dumb as you think he is. And he goes, well, he'd have to be, or otherwise he wouldn't get his clothes on in the morning. And then you get a moment later on where he's like, "Do you like in the second one where he's like, do you think I'm dumb? And he goes, well, frankly, I'm surprised you can even dress yourself in the morning. And I'm like, I know you didn't have 34 writers working on this one, but you didn't need to recycle all of the terrible jokes. They made the same joke about the, uh, in the first one, it's uh, Fred talks about his father reaching the ripe old age of 38. In <laughs> this one, you they're at the carnival and it's like, Meet the well, I don't know the world's oldest man, you know the forty-year-old man. It's uh, it's yeah, it's the same joke. It's the same joke. Okay, people didn't live as long. Stone age. <laughs> Good, I, great. <laughs> no take. It really hit that note. But yeah, really hammering it's, home, like chiseling it's home. It's an homage. Maybe it's because it took six years. It's like. <laughs> Yeah, let's like hit all the beats like precisely. Yeah. <laughs> like the, 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 the kids, classic. The kids who saw the 1994 Flintstones movie are now old enough to be babysitting they kids that they backs. can take. Yeah, yeah, to the to the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, because like that was the key thing. This arrived as, and again, this is where we get into the Darren argues for Viva Rock Vegas as if it's the most important movie ever made. But you have this really interesting moment in 90s cinema where. We're figuring out adapting cartoons and comic books into live action. And it, it's really the first time you've been doing this, like, seriously. So, obviously, Tim Burton's Batman starts it all off in 1989. But, like, this is credited, for example, to the co-writer team of, like, Jim Cash and Jack Epps, who worked on, like, Dick Tracy. And Dick Tracy, for me, feels like it's a blueprint or a touchstone for both of these Flintstones movies. Where the idea is, what if you take a cartoon that presumably parents of kids watched as kids themselves, and they will now take their own kids to see, but also adults don't go and see, again, this is the thing that Andrew's kind of talked about in the podcast before, where all movies are now four-quadrant movies, and you can, the 90s are the era where we begin to figure this out, where it's like, we want adults to go and see this movie that is for kids, it can't be animated, because there's this assumption ironically given the origins of the Flintstones as a cartoon for adults, but this idea that adults at this stage won't go and see animated films. So we have to make these beloved animated comic book films into live action films. And again, we, George of the Jungle is a big example of that. Dudley Do-Right's a big example of that. The first Flintstones movie is an example of that. And this is an example of that as well. This comes out the same summer as Rocky and Bullwinkle, to pick another example as well, where there's this sense of like, 
it can we can make these and again the the stuff that's happening with uh the the looney tunes at, at warner brothers as well where you have there even they are composited into live action in say space jam or looney tunes back in action with brendan fraser and stuff like that but the idea is that you are remaking these but making them as live action and how weird that is like just there there is so much of this movie that Maybe maybe people who like the first Flintstones and who like this movie like about it, but like where they try and recreate like animated bits in live action. So, for example, where they'll do the Foley work where he tiptoes up on the up to the bowling thing and they play the little like Foley or whatever kind of noise. Uh, don't worry, I'll fix it in post. Um, <laughs> or like they'll do a bit where he'll jump up in the air and he'll be suspended six feet off the ground like he's a cartoon character. Or his eyes will turn into like swelling slot machines that rotate. Or he'll have like a thought balloon that will pop up and things will appear in it. And it's like th- th- those images don't don't work in live action. Mm-hmm. They're, they're kind of like nightmarish is how I would describe them. Yeah, I, I saw you make that point on, on Twitter. There's a disconnect, certainly, between what we're expected to, what we were supposed to understand and what we're actually seeing in terms of trying to make this like a cartoon and live action. And there's plenty of examples in this film. Um, like, all right, there's a, there's a scene where they try to, like, um, you know, in the Flintstones where they're, they're zooming away yeah. in a car and it makes that noise. It goes pew! But uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, um, a, there's a bit where... Um, uh, so the idea with the, with the great kazoo yeah. is that Fred Flintstone is the only person who can see him and he's arguing with kazoo um, and there's a man parked next to him. He's like, who are you talking to? And he thinks Fred Flintstone's crazy and he tries to speed away. But it's just the shot sped up <laughs> with the sound effect. Um, and that's just, just takes me out of it completely. Um, and it's like, it's the same way, you know, when you're talking about like Fred Flintstone lifting up into the air, it's very, it's very clearly like, you know, that, that's a man on a yeah. wire. You know, it just it doesn't work. You're right. There is a disconnect between the um, desired effect and what, you know, what we're actually seeing. And again, and again, yeah. like this is if we want to make an argument for this as an important movie uh, in terms of like its cultural and historical significance. This is the movie that kills Hanna-Barbera. Uh, not literally, although the, the Hanna and Barbera do die very quickly after this movie comes out. <laughs> uh, but in, in the sense of like, this is the movie that bankrupts Hanna-Barbera as an independent in- industry. Uh, this is intro- This was obviously distributed by Universal Studios. Um, mm. So was the first Flintstones movie. Uh, so was, I believe, um, is it Josie and the Pussycats the following year. But the box office failure of this movie means that they get swallowed by Warner Brothers. They get swallowed by Warner Brothers animation. And that's basically why from Scooby-Doo onwards in 2002, all Hanna-Barbera properties are controlled by Warners and Warner Media. Um, this basically ends them as an independent company. Which is kind of terrifying. Okay, yeah, maybe the film's notable yeah. for that, <laughs> you know. Um, and, that and, and and I mean, or arguably, again, it exists at the end of that trend as well, because like previously, uh, Hanna Barbera had been an absolute juggernaut. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, they had yeah. like, the cultural impact that <laughs> they had in great the seventies. Movies that they made. Okay, okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> but I think very and, relevant. Like TV to, shows. To the kids the, today. The, the reruns. Okay, like, okay, well, okay. Uh, William, William Hanna and Joseph Barbera were in their prime. <laughs> in <laughs> the late 90s. This robbed them of that. Yeah. Okay, well, what I, what I would argue, if, if you would allow me to, like, make the counter-argument to your point, Mr. Mr. Quinn there. Very, no, I, I admire the cross-examination. I think, I think ideas and arguments are subject to scrutiny. What I would say to that is that, obviously, like, you have this idea of 
their big heyday in the 70s. And the idea like Hanna-Barbera being, and again, that animation was usually impactful, even if it's been criticized for like what it did to American animation as an art form unto itself and its legacy in kind of like making it more simplistic, uh, you know, the way which it perhaps cheapened that, how all that can kind of maybe trace its roots back to Hanna-Barbera, but there's still a cultural juggernaut. But in the 90s in particular, and around the time of this movie's release, you have the reemergence of things like Boomerang and Adult Swim. You have things like Space Ghost Coast to Coast, for example. Uh, you have, I think, Harvey Birdman for, is launching for the first time around this time. You have the idea of Hanna-Barbera rebranding and reinventing itself for a new generation of fans. And like, again, turn of the millennium becoming a bit more, you know, adult, a bit more oriented, a bit more with it, a bit more self-aware. Like, again... Not to spoil recommendations later on, but the following year you have the release of, say, Josie and the Pussycats, which is an adaptation of a comic book which was adapted into a Hanna-Barbera property, but which was pitched at that same level as those Adult Swim shows. And I would argue, you know, this is a, you know, this we are citizens of Spice World on this podcast. I'm not talking about Arrakis. We, we are people of the world. We do want to spice up our lives. But I think that, like, Josie and the Pussycats is an underrated piece of 2000s pop cinema i think it is really really well done it's underappreciated i think it's been reclaimed in recent years as a cult classic and i think that is what you lose as a result of the failure of the flintstones in beaver rock vegas where immediately after this the scooby-doo movie which is released in 2002 is immediately retooled to make it less self-aware less playful less fourth wall breaking, less satirical, less parodic. It's much more straight, generic, down the middle, aimed at kids, CGI dog, standard stuff. Um, and I think that, you know, you could argue that the failure of Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas kind of is responsible for that. Well, I I suppose with Josie and the Pussycats, like the... Um, Another Alan Cumming masterpiece. It, it, it probably just wouldn't have the same cultural significance, like... You know, like like if they if they did a a banana splits movie at like the same time, I don't know if like loads of people would be um, rushing to see that either. Oh yeah, like Flintstones kind of got all the people to see it. I mean, if if it had been as good as Josie and the Pussycats, but was about the Flintstones, (laughs) (laughs) then then it would probably get the audience it it, it deserved, I guess. I mean, Josie and the Pussycats also didn't get exactly rave reviews at the time. It took years for it to be appreciated um, in in hindsight. Uh, But again, we should note that that was directed by Deborah Kelpin and Henry Alfont, the other credited writing team on the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. So, you know, obviously the two movies are equivalent in quality, clearly. But yeah, no, I I think like that is that is the argument that you kind of make for this movie. And the fact that it like it weirdly exists at this point in time where Hollywood is stuck between CGI and practical effects. Yeah. Like it's this moment of transition where like the practical effects in this movie are overseen by the Jim Henson creature uh, shop. So things like uh, the the dog. Uh, what's his name? Is it Dino? Dino. Dino. Yeah. yeah. Dino. It's not like Dino. Dino. <laughs> I know, that's why I checked. I'm not very good with pronunciation. Um, But Dino is part practical, but also part CGI. And there's a lot of that here where stuff is like close-ups are done using practical effects and practical sets and practical costumes. And then a lot of CGI stuff. Sorry, Andrew. There's a very bad scene with um, Chip Rockefeller where he arrives. He's first in his class at Prince Stone. Stone, Prince Stone. That's right. But he... He he arrives on this creature 
It's an animated polo dinosaur. Yes. I believe he's meant to be Hoppy from season five and six. Oh, look at you. Where, where did the, I, I think it was the, the I, I, I looked it up. It was the Rubbles, I think, had a pet. And I was oh, like, like a, a kangaroo. Yeah, kind exactly. Of thing. I yeah. figured that's what he was meant to be because he's like hopping, but he's horrific. Like, it's a moment where you're just yeah. like, stop, get that off of the screen. <laughs> like, the weird CGI practical effects blend, it just, it generally looks quite ugly, I think. Like, it feels very artificial a lot of the time. I don't know. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of uh, the scene where one of the great kazoos race procreates with itself and splits off and creates another kazoo. And it was uh, horrifying. <laughs> it, it is like something from, you know, kind of the thing or, or kind of like, um, yeah, like the it's the cover of Prince of Darkness is what I kind of think of the image there. Do we want to talk about the gazooness of it all? Like, again, the, the weird thing where these movies are ostensibly children's films, but are also like weirdly kind of adult adjacent without actually being adult in any way, shape or form. So the first one is a mm. movie about corporate malfeasance and embezzlement in which like Fred Flintstone discovers white collar crime is being perpetrated by Kyle MacLachlan. In this movie, like Gazoo is sent to earth, not just to watch people fall in love, but he's sent to watch the mate. The physical like, act of love. The physical act. Yeah. Like there's a point where he says, get to it as Barney and, and kind of Fred are lying in bed together. And I'm like, this is a, yeah. like, it's not as if this is like a winking sly, you know, kind of like four adults movie on the edge. It's, no, this is very goofy and very childish and very silly. And then you have Alan Cumming just waving his hands and going, get get to it. Get to it, get to it. No, there's a, there's a bit where um, they're on the, they're uh, they're on a date. Fred and Barney are on a date with uh, Wilma and Betty, and Barney says, "Oh, she's going to you know that the lesser Baldwin makes that very pained <laughs> expression he he has throughout the film. He says, "Oh, uh, Betty's going to take me home and cook me breakfast. So I don't know what we're going to do in the meantime." <laughs> and, like implying he's going, he and, he and Betty are going to spend the night together. Um, so there's this kind of, like little sprinkles yeah. of like <laughs> sexual innuendo. Um, yeah, there's there's also the moment where like Chip Rockefeller announces in the casino that there has been a crime committed and you get the reaction shot of one of the patrons looking at the girl at his arm and saying, how old did you say you were? <laughs> uh, which is a very, very, very 2000 joke yeah. in a, a number of ways. Um, and uh, of course, yeah, the, as you mentioned, the earlier uh, reference to the Fred and Barney maybe getting their rocks off at yeah. each other. That was a pun. Nice. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I, I, yeah, I think there's several kind of. I, I, I feel like there, there's, there's reference to it early on as well of, of them kind of as a couple, where Barney doesn't understand like, oh yeah, oh, like a girl. It's so, like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I, a girl. I, I'm tired of not having anybody. You got me, Fred. <laughs> uh, do we? Okay, I, I feel like we need to talk about Stephen Baldwin as Barney. Um, that performance, like. <laughs> I, I think that, like, there are... I think he's, like, the best Stephen Baldwin... Oh, okay, okay. Uh, like, like, that he can be. Like, the, <laughs> like, like that... Everybody's he, seventh favorite Baldwin. You know, that... that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I, I, I feel like Stephen Baldwin is giving it a go. And, like, he's maybe kind of perhaps miscast. But, but, but himself and Mark Addy give... Uh, kind of sketch level kind of uh, yeah, impressions yeah. Of, of of Fred and and Barney and you kind of um I 
guests like want to sort of like should we be celebrating them for that? Should, you know, they 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 didn't anyway. take themselves too seriously. They 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 just like okay, this is silly. I'm just going to do it like this. Um, but as you said, it just feels like they're doing an impression at a party of yeah. a vague memory of a cartoon character they knew when they were younger. Um, and uh, why why Barney never made that face? Well, that, that's that's the thing. Is that like I, I, again? Part of me is like it this feels is a like Rick Moranis impression, maybe. No, but it's not a Rick, like Rick Moranis. Like Rick Moranis understands that Barney Rubble is a cartoon, and if you are playing Barney Rubble in live action, you cannot like emulate the mannerisms of a cartoon and like bring them to the screen. You have to like find a way to like embody them or to convey that. Like for me. Looking at Stephen Baldwin, if I'm like asked to give a note on that performance, it's like Stephen Baldwin looked at a drawing of Barney Rubble and was like, how can I, as a human being, make my body most closely resemble the shape of this pen and ink drawing? So I'll raise my shoulders really high. I'll press my chin in because Barney's a two-dimensional drawing and he doesn't really have a clearly defined neck. Uh, I'll squint my eyes really... You say he doesn't make that face, but that's because he's a cartoon. I will squint my eyes really narrowly so it appears that I don't have, like, white eyeballs. Uh, I just have, like, little slits in my face or kind of maybe pupils at a push. And I will just try and make an entire performance in that style. Like, he feels like... The kind of performance that, like, when I was in speech and drama at the ages of seven, you know, I would give if I were asked to play Barney Rubble, where I'd be like, okay, I am a cartoon character. Barney doesn't have a neck. I guess I'm not going to have a neck. Barney doesn't have a white of his eye. So I guess I'll try not to have a white of an eye. And, like, I, I feel like this is the thing where I, I feel like when I'm watching it, it feels weirdly inappropriate is the thing about that performance, where it feels like, He's playing Barney as if he's like Edward Norton in like Motherless Brooklyn or he's like Sean Penn in I Am Sam, where it's like, does this version of Barney, is he all there? Is, is he compass meant? Is he, mm. is he? Well, they're both meant to be dum-dums, right? But they are, they are, thank you. Yeah, they are dum-dums. But I mean, but I mean like, he, he, there are moments where you're like, is, is Barney... A child is Barney like mentally the age of five, which is not quite how Rick Moranis played in the first one, but also not quite how Barney was on the show. Barney was an idiot who went along with Fred, but he wasn't like you. You didn't feel like you had to watch him at all times and couldn't leave him unattended, you know. Mm. Yeah, he was a family man, and uh, and also in the first one, he switched out the tests didn't he so yes he was the secret genius he was a secret genius so yeah this goes in a completely different direction <laughs> with uh, barney's intelligence or uh or or uh, competency i guess um they decided that the first movie wasn't canonical yeah it, it wasn't faithful enough yeah. to barney as a character um but yeah like i, I do like that is that is really going and like addy addy I don't really like Addy that much, but I, I respect what I, what I think he's doing, mm -hmm. which is that, like, Goodman in the first movie does, like, a really good Fred Flintstone performance, which is a very strange sentence to utter, but he does it by, like, being Fred Flintstone, basically, mm -hmm. and kind of, like, leaning into that and leaning into the aspects of his persona that, like, play into that. Addy, Addy is weirdly, like, he's doing Jackie Gleason. He's not doing Fred Flintstone. He's playing Jackie Gleason. 
which is like an interesting choice because it's it's like a weird acting exercise where it's like you're playing Fred Flintstone in a prequel to the Flintstones. So you're playing a version of Fred Flintstone that isn't Fred Flintstone yet. And it's like, I got it. He's Jackie Gleason. He's the character they ripped off to make Fred Flintstone. And I'm like, I admire that conceptually. I don't think it works. And I'm not sure the kids watching this movie get what you're doing, Mark Addy. Um, <laughs> I, fe- I, I, I feel like Jane Krakowski was decent. Yes. Was what? I thought she was actively good, man. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, 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 I liked her in this. I thought she, she was, she... She brought a great kind of like a sort of like a cheeky energy um, uh, to it. I, 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 yeah, like she understands the tone. Yes. Um, can navigate it well. Um, yeah, no, I, I felt that too. And I'm I, uh, a big fan of um, Jane Grigowski. And I think I think it's a performance that is both a performance and an impersonation where she gets the giggle down and all that. Yeah. Sort of, she's like, she does the mannerisms that you expect Betty to do. But Betty also actually seems more like a human being than either of the two male leads of the movie, despite having less to do than either of them. Or perhaps because the movie gives her less to do. It's also better casting. Yes. Than the first movie. In in terms of Betty. Well, Rosie O'Donnell. You know that Rosie O'Donnell is the only returning uh, cast member from the original film? Yeah, I did see that in the... um... In the uh, kind of IMDb, but I didn't notice her in the movie. Yeah, she's the octopus. She plays the octopus. I just learned what calamari is. You're oh, really? Yeah, that's. Oh, so she like voiced her? Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, she she worked the puppet. She worked all eight hours. She didn't, she didn't like <laughs> uh, push that puppet over her head <laughs> yeah. and, and make her move her face with it. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, no, she voiced the octopus. She's the only returning of the four major cast members from the first film. And then I guess, do we have any strong feelings about Kirsten Johnson as Wilma Slaghoople? It is strange um, casting. It, it, it's it's kind of... Be, 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 because kind of Elizabeth Perkins does really sort of resemble yeah. her. And and not 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 just in terms of of looks, but the kind of uh, vibe, mannerism, yeah, yeah, of 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 Wilma. Whereas there, it feels like they're consciously going for something quite different, like a, a very different kind of a comic performance. Which um, and Wilma was always very kind of deadpan. Yes, Wilma was the, the wife in terms of sixty sitcoms. You yeah, know, she was the one who didn't. Re- Her job was to scold Fred, like again in the sexual politics of nineteen sixties American yeah. sitcoms. You know. But to be like like somewhat withering, yeah, um, and kind of express reservations. But the 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 with Wilma and this, I don't know what it is. It's it's kind of um, she's the character is very overwhelmed, kind of all of the time. Yeah, like she is the great gazoo, I guess. Um, I don't know. And it doesn't necessarily play to Johnson's strengths. Like, Johnson's a really good comic performer. I think she was on Third Rock at the time as well. Like, yeah. Regularly. She's arguably the, like, again, Johnson and Krakowski are the two who have, like, actual comedy experience at this point in time. Having she, worked in it's television. It's definitely a comic performance, but it, it's just strange in the context of Wilma. Yeah. He's definitely deciding to do something different with, with, with that character working with, like, kind of, what do we know about Wilma? And how can we make that funny? Whereas like, I think somebody more dry kind of just giving sort of like withering one-liners would have, would have, would have, would have done, um, maybe the, 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 
It was feels strange to say, give the character better service. Wilma Slagoople, the icon yeah, of American yeah. pop culture. Or, she deserves better. Hashtag Wilma deserves better. <laughs> Justice for Wilma. I think Joan Collins is fine. I think she she's she she's grand. It's it, it, it's 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 weird how they go from like Elizabeth Taylor to Joan Collins. Well, if that feels like it's a statement in terms of the whole movie, like yeah. moving from Taylor yeah. to Collins is like moving the entire movie up peg down i think and i like i love Collins I, I feel like goodman to addy and this is either genuinely no offense to 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 addy i don't think he's like terrible like or anything but that in terms of star power yes it seems like a a a, a more precipitous fall than from from Taylor um, to Collins. To, 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 I, I mean, look, Stephen Baldwin wasn't like talking like... about how hot Mark Addy was. Like, let's be fair here. <laughs> yeah. And from Mick Moranis, I think, to Stephen Baldwin. Is, <laughs> is quite yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to guess how much Mark Addy got paid for this? Do you know what Mark Addy's salary was? So, like, outside of the gratification of Steven Spielberg saying, I want you to be my Fred Flintstone. How much do you think Mark Addy got paid for this movie? I hope he's well compensated. What what are we like like I don't know if I know much about how much people get paid. Okay. I'm just gonna go and guess like two million dollars. On the button. Really? Yeah. Oh, no way. <laughs> exactly two million dollars. Good at this. Which I, I, I know. You should be negotiating in Hollywood. Um, uh, that surprised me. That feels like it, it overvalues Mark Addy, like whose biggest role to that point in time was like being the chubby one in like the film Monty. It's convincing him to do it. Well, it's no wonder he yabba dabba did it. <laughs> nice. I like it. Um, it's like, what, what, how much money is it going to take for you to throw away your fledgling career? <laughs> two million. I feel like two million is a good number. Yeah. Where you can kind of like um, live a, like, like a, uh, have, have a reasonable lifestyle, like living off of the interest, <laughs> and leave, leave 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 most of it to your children. Um, like like yeah yeah, just 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 get by fine and like just stop this Hollywood nonsense. I, I it does feel like yeah, you can go back and make like your, those British Austin dramas. Not have to worry about money. <laughs> yeah, that's it pretty much. Like again, like here's here's the quote from Addy. Like just don't go nuts. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a yacht. Don't, um, don't uh, like Nicholas Cage. Don't need that money. Yeah, we'll yeah. we'll get rid of two million like fairly quick. Yeah, Mark Addy will be like, no, I just paid off most of the mortgage and got uh, you know lease on the car. Um. But like, yeah, so, so like Addie's quote here is like when asked about the script is, I discarded it straight away because I thought, about the script. <laughs> why would they bother sending me this? I've got a pile of mile high to read. Am I really going to be wasting my time? And then apparently Universal rang him and said, you know, you, I know you passed on it, but Stephen is really keen that you're the guy to play Fred. Naturally, <laughs> <laughs> naturally, Addie had second thoughts because after all, and this is the quote, He's the kind of guy you don't want to say no to. So I thought I'd better read it at least. And <laughs> read it he did and realized what it was the filmmakers thought that he could bring to the role. They said that they were looking for someone who could bring humanity and heart to Fred. The comedy stuff, the look, the voice, that they weren't bothered about. I kind of like that. <laughs> they didn't want me to look like Fred, talk like Fred, or be funny. And I was like, I can do that. I can do that. <laughs> I can. I can show up. What are you? I can be there on the day. <laughs> I do have a heart. I have, the doctor told me I have yeah. a heart. Um, I also do like this story about Joan Collins when she's interviewed for the movie. Collins 
in this 10 years earlier version, plays the role Elizabeth Taylor originated. Joan is fat and sexy and noted, I am 10 years younger than Elizabeth, so it just made sense. And then in parenthesis, the article notes, actually, she's only one year younger than Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> then, do we want to talk then about the great performance, the movie, the, the performance that really anchors the movie, holds it together. I am, of course, talking about Thomas Gibson as Jake Rockwell. No, let's... Alan Cumming. Because Alan Cumming is perhaps the center of this movie. Yes. How do we feel about him? I don't know why The Great Kazoo is in this film, because if you cut him, nothing would really change. Um, sure, he comes at the end and does something, does a very small thing, but you could very easily write around that. I don't, he, I don't get his purpose uh, being here. And he looks terrible. <laughs> he looks re- he looks really ugly. I mean, <laughs> like his head is far. He's weirdly disproportionate. His head's far too big for his like alien body. You know what I love? It's the arms. It's the little hands. They're the parts that really freak me out. Yeah. Like it's the fact that his hands move. It's not just like his. It's not just they put like Alan Cummings' head on a puppet. It's that the puppet's hands move dexterously, and I'm like, that's wrong. That's just wrong. Yeah. No, it's uh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> like, again, the character of the Great Gazoo we, we talked about was introduced in the later seasons of The Simpsons. Uh, sorry, the seasons of The Flintstones. And is generally regarded as like the jump the shark moment for the show. The moment at which the show became irredeemably awful. His appearance to many fans of the series ruined it. And like Scrappy-Doo. That, that's, he's yeah. exactly like Scrappy-Doo, another Hanna-Barbera character. And I do love that they're like, you know what? This sequel to this Flintstones movie that people really didn't seem to like to begin with needs. What if we take the most hated character from the cartoon (laughs) and not just put him in the movie, but like have him introduce the movie. Make him the audience surrogate, the character who frames. Yeah. And as well, like the he he delivers kind of um, uh, plot details from a scene that he has no business being in. <laughs> yeah, what is he doing in that scene? What is he doing he's in that room at that Earth? Yes. And he's chosen has he specifically chosen Fred and Barney? Or was it just or, luck or, is, that he or was that just on the crash uh, landing site? And why is he in that office? Like, cuz you look <laughs> at him and you're like why is he there? And did did um did they originally shoot this with the idea that he would be there? <laughs> or did they decide uh, av- afterwards they were like, wait, how would Barney... How does he know that information? <laughs> yeah. Fred know this information? I mean, are you daring to suggest that like the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas may have had a script that wasn't entirely watertight? If they say, hey... This uh, is why you hire 34 writers. That's why they should have hired 34 writers. I mean, that's what you have them to catch stuff like this. <laughs> Is yeah, oh, no, I am. Um, I disagree. I think uh, the Great Kazoo was very important and had a lot to do, <laughs> and was very, very necessary to proceedings. <laughs> I have to say, I did. Coming is one of those actors who, like, he's a bottom one hundred regular, mm-hmm. and he's a bottom one hundred regular in particular in sequels where they, you know, maybe haven't got all the original talent back. He's also like in Son of the Mask, for example, as well, is another big one around this time. And yeah, he, I I generally don't. Golden like, Eye. <laughs> he did do Golden Eye. That gets a pretty good performance. Yeah. yeah, 
Well, that was the that was the one that kind of established him to American filmmakers. And I like again, it's that thing that you mentioned with Addy, where it's like you know you could tell very quickly he's like, well, I want a summer home. <laughs> Like I've decided I want to do a lot of schlock very quickly and then never want, want to have to worry about finances ever again. Like he, he's talked about how like, and again, you read his, like he does really good interviews. He's very generous when he talks about things, but like he talks about like during Eyes Wide Shut, which was like the year before this. And he's like, thing about Eyes Wide Shut was that it made me love acting again. I'd been doing these roles for years where I was wondering, what even is the point of this? Why am I doing this? What does it matter? And then I did Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley, and it was just a wonderful experience, had the most amazing time, and I remembered why I fell in love with acting. And the unspoken, like, punchline at the bottom of that is, and then I went and did The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. (laughs) Like a year later. Having taken (laughs) that experience. Uh, and to be fair, he he does like he does t- kind of look back fondly on this, where it's like this was his crazy year where he did like he did Annie, he did Viva Rock Vegas, he did the TV show God, the Devil, and Bob, where he filled in for Robert Downey Jr. because Robert Downey Jr. had certain issues that Robert Downey Jr. had at that moment in time and had to drop out. But he says, yeah, I was actually supposed to just do The Great Kazoo, in the, but in the read-through I read Mick Jagged as well, because nobody had been cast yet. So they asked me to do him as well. I actually did him first because The Great Kazoo was at the end. I spent three weeks as The Great Kazoo, suspended on wires, along with two paper plates which said Fred and Barney on them to look at. And then when I had little gaps between takes, it looked like two metal poles sticking out of my waist because of this harness thing. They'd just take me outside and lift me up, and they'd sort of sit there swinging, having a cigarette. I'd take the helmet off as well, just to let that breathe. So there's the image of Alan coming in a gigantic, buoyant, uh, like, (laughs) costume, smoking a cigarette, removing his giant alien head. Um, But I, I do like that he's not at all kind of embarrassed by it. I, part of me, the the Gazoo stuff, Cummings seems to at least be having fun. Like, he seems to at least be enjoying the campness. He, like, I think Cummings is under no illusions that this is a good movie. Not that any of the rest of the cast no, are either. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. think anybody kind of on this is, 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 is kind of trying to imbue it with something kind of yeah. other than just like, hey, look, uh, <laughs> audience we're having fun steven spielberg told me i had to be yeah, here <laughs> exactly i i think he's not terrible as mick jagged i don't know i didn't hate it <laughs> um i guess it's kind of fun um but why i don't know why he's wearing a union jack uh considering uh the united kingdom wouldn't come to fruition for Many, 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 that, many, that's, many that's your continuity. That's, that's the problem well, you have with this universe. I the UK yeah. was based yeah. on that. Well, also, of course, they've replicated class disparity in the sexual politics of, nice. you know, yeah. like, like somehow <laughs> in, this, in this Stone Age um, town. The, the, the Union Jack was found in a cave. Yeah, in, in, in handprints. In, it was just... In Britain. Yeah. yeah. That, that's um, the origin yeah. of it, yeah. Um, well, I mean, again... Um, I, w- I, w- I will say... His his performance in the credits, this isn't love. A Brian Wilson song, by the way. They, 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 like, they, yeah, no, they're not doing Stone songs. He also yeah. sings Fever Rock Vegas as well. But kind of almost pretty much made for this movie, essentially. Like the the but um uh it's it's really bad. <laughs> the, the 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 performance at the end it's kind of like um 
the kind of music you play to get people to leave the to theater. leave the cinema quickly so, so the next you can clean up after. so the next screening <laughs> can, can begin and people can crowd in and get to see this again yeah i mean yeah the, the thing about like the you, again not to jump too deep into the, but the i think it's floor, consciously okay. bad i think it's trying to be kind of bad but also like you like, like as if to make fun of the rolling stones Kind of arty idea of like kind of like an airhead sort of musician uh, rather than specifically the Rolling Stones. But then you 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 get like a, a, a performance, like a song that that sounds bad. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's the, the, the result of, 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 of that kind of nodding. Well, the question of like, is it bad on purpose? Does that excuse it? Sorry, Dave. Well, no, that they made this. There's a line in the film that says they're the world's only rock band. So <laughs> they have much choice. It's a monopoly. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> As you said, this is a movie about the economics of kind of Stone Age society. Yeah. Again, like again, not to jump too deep into like the Flintstones kind of wormhole or stuff like that, but the idea, <laughs> one of the fan theories about the Flintstones, um, is that like it takes place in a post-apocalyptic landscape. That's why it's so based around like American iconography and stuff like that, because people are like kind of cargo culting this world that existed before they did, albeit with this kind of primitive technology. That is a relatively common belief among hardcore what? Flintstones fans. There are dinosaurs in the movie. In the, in <laughs> well, those the are show. the result of radioactive waste, Andrew. I mean, come on. Have you not? Think about it. Think about it, Andrew. <laughs> think wake about, up. Yeah. yeah. Wake up, sheeple. Sorry. I could be wrong. I know there was uh, a DC Comics um, sort of. Uh, there was a Scooby Doo yes. post apocalyptic comic series that ran for a while. I don't, they did a Flintstones one too. I'm yes. not sure if that was similar. Um, I didn't read it, and I have. Uh, it's it's no. I, 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 it's go ahead, Darren. And I was gonna say like that. That's in my recommendations. That Mark Russell yeah. sitcom with sort of kind of like comic adaptation in which Fred is a veteran of forgotten wars, um, and in which yes, he's yabba dabba do is what he says to deal with the post traumatic stress disorder that he's working through, um, and this like really grim commentary on American consumerism and kind of the sixties ideal. It's it's again very 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 fascinating, uh, but. Back to, to, to kind of Viva Rock Vegas. Um, it is worth noting that one one key creative talent did, in fact, return for this movie. They couldn't get the four leads, but they did manage to bring back director Brian Levant, who has an interesting filmography. Uh, just to run down it very, very quickly. Problem Child 2. Beethoven. The Flintstones. Jingle All the Way. The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. Snow Dogs. Are We There Yet? That's, I believe, the Ice Cube movie. The Spy Next Door, that's a Jackie Chan movie. And Max 2, White House Hero, which is his most recent film, which is part of the new Good Boy canon, which is a story about a German shepherd who works in the Secret Service protecting the president. I feel like you know... Sorry, it's because these all sound like films I would have rented as a kid. Definitely definitely Beethoven. And I feel as well that you know what you're getting with Brian Levant as as like a filmmaker. That it's a sort of like a a, a silly kind of maybe camp aesthetic. Like, um, right? Yeah. I mean, again, like it's worth noting that he got the job directing the movie uh, because Steven Spielberg pointed him and said, I need you to direct a Flintstones movie. No, he got the job because apparently <laughs> of of all the candidates that there were considered for this, he was a famous Flintstones fan. 
He was a huge fan of the show. He had lots of merchandise. He had lots of collectible memorabilia. He, on other projects where people had worked with him, would make jokes referencing the show. He would quote dialogue from it incessantly. Uh, and he was a huge fan of the show. And this is kind of, these two movies are very much kind of his passion project. These are the movies of his that he he's talked about feeling most invested in. Um, and that they're a labor of, uh, Andrew's looking at me. And no, 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 no. But it, like, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is an interesting thing in the sense that you can kind of like surround yourself with memorabilia and kind of like live in the world of the Flintstones that you love. And it's like that, that, that he would kind of do it for free. Yeah. Yeah. And you would have like, and the moment that's like, that's what makes you the perfect director for this. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's, that's exactly the kind of visionary you want. The guy who did Beethoven and who lives in a Flintstone, like again, well, lives not in. Not only tolerate it, but enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly. Um, we don't want two John Goodmans on this set. Uh, we don't want, you know, we don't want two Mark Addies on this set. We don't want kind of like Stephen Baldwin kind of vibes coming out here. Um, but in terms of the movie, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't just already said? David, anything in your notes that we, we haven't really talked about with regards to the movie? I mean, I think we've covered quite a bit of what I jotted down. Um, I mean, apparently um, Chris Kirsch, a young Kristen Stewart's in here somewhere. Yes, she's the ring toss girl. All right. I didn't I didn't take notes the first uh, my only watch through recent <laughs> watch through. Um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't take note. Um, also, there is um, uh at the end, uh, when uh, Fred Fred has been framed for um, stealing Wilma's pearls, which is one of those very prequel things, we have to explain how she got the pearls, and then they have to be a key plot point. But yeah, sorry. Exactly, it's a very big moment where she gets them from her, it's her gift from her father, and that they have such great meaning. They're not just something she wore because <laughs> they look nice. They they're injected with meaning now. So now when you watch the Flintstones, you're like, oh, it's it's like the um, dice from Soda. But, uh, um. Yes, exactly. We needed to know. We really needed to know. Um, but uh no um that, that's never resolved um fred escapes yes rockefeller rockefeller it's implied rockefeller's gonna get killed by the mob in a reference to casino by the way i love that they referenced the head vice yeah. scene from martin scorsese's casino yes because that for the kids um yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, that's never resolved. Uh, Fred, Fred and, and uh, Wilma just get to drive away. I'd, I'd like to imagine that going forward in any in oh. first film, he's like actually a wanted man. There's a warrant out for him. <laughs> and possibly the murder of Chip Rockefeller. Because you have to imagine the police The police come to town. And they're like, so did Mr. Rockefeller have any public altercations the night that he was murdered? Yes, he, he implicated Fred Flintstone in the theft of these precious pearls. And Fred, Fred just disappeared angrily. And then he was found murdered. <laughs> I think it's the same the same rules as they have in Sweden, where if you escape prison, you have served your sentence. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> you're, you're given amnesty. No, no, that, that's not true. <laughs> I think so. It feels like the kind of thing that might be true. <laughs> I, I, I do appreciate you asking, David, though. It's very important to clarify. <laughs> <that. laughs> um, it's like... Otherwise, um, you, it could have led to like a series of very bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, hey, well, I can always like, escape. We're, <laughs> um, we're not, just to be clear, we're not punishing you for the crime. We're punishing you for getting caught for the mm. crime. There, Here in there, Sweden, we take great pride in treating the best kind of criminals. There, there's a young John Cho in it as well. Yes, he is and, the valet. Yeah. And I don't care if he's going to the opera. 
I don't know. I think we've covered my my notes mostly. Uh, I only have so much to say about the, the Flintstones and Beaver Bug Vegas. <laughs> I mean, I think the 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 set design isn't is quite artificial and ugly looking. Um, you know, and the um and the weird CGI and practical effects blends is yes doesn't quite work for me either. So I, I, uh, like, there was no level where I would recommend this film to anyone. You know what I mean? Like, it kind of. But like, this is the same year as like Gladiator comes out, right? And I mean, obviously, people talk about Gladiator and they talk about the Flintstones and Viva Rock Vegas, and they are two peas in the pod. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. Um, like, I mean, some people say when when Gladiator won Best Picture, really it was the Flintstones and Viva Rock Vegas that kind of did as well. Um, yeah. But like the idea that they exist, they do say that. They, they do, that they is do definitely that, a thing that people say. Um, <laughs> but more more seriously, though, like obviously they're released the same summer, and they're movies that exist at that moment where Hollywood is going from practical, real world grounded special effects to digital. And obviously, like you know, they build like is it one quarter of the Coliseum in Gladiator and do the rest in CGI? They bring back Oliver Reed through CGI, for example, at various points in that movie. They do you know duplicate the crowd shots in CGI, but they use like real animals. There's this kind of blend of like the best of all possible worlds when you're making Gladiator, where like we're burning down an actual forest, but we're representing Rome in CGI. You can't CGI. really tell when they're using CGI. In Gladiators, yeah, yeah. I mean, Not like, really. It's, it's I don't think that, as, as an audience you can't really yeah. tell. Definitely more seamless, yeah. Yes, yeah, definitely. That, well, that's the thing, is that like, the Fever Rock Vegas is like the evil Urzatz kind of twin <laughs> of that, where it's like, it costs almost as much, again, $83 million this movie cost, which was a lot of money at How the much? time. $83 million. Oh, now keep in mind that when Titanic went over $100 million, people were like, that is insane. Um... <laughs> So just to put that in perspective, so this is, I mean, and we talked about like Speed 2 and Speed 2 was insane when it topped over at $102 million, right? That was like out of control. So $83 million is like you're, to quote the Great Grazoo, you're in the red there, I think. But like you have the idea that like they built, obviously they built Bedrock, they built Viva Rock Vegas, um, they built Rock Vegas itself. They built it out, I think, by the Vasquez Rocks out in California. Um, there were some, again... Now, keep in mind, this is from Brian Levant, the director of the Flintstones movie. So he maybe has a vested interest in making this sound like a big deal. I can't source this from any other sources, but this is, I think, worth repeating. It was shot with the help of some 4,500 extras on the biggest set since Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. It was built, or rather Flintstoneized, from scratch. In pre-production for close to a year, it employed a crew of a thousand craftsmen. You get to create a whole world, said Mr. Levant, a civilization. Those things that made The Wizard of Oz such an incredible voyage visually, we can do very easily now. So many films being made now tax the imagination of both the filmmaker and the audience. There are no stories that cannot be told. I love the... Yeah. Good films there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do love the idea. Of, yeah, no, it's, it's us in the Wizard of Oz. That's what we're going with. Yeah. We're in that space. And again, like at the same time, though, you're moving the CGI where like they're not using matte paintings. All the all the backdrops are, you may have noticed, a terrible CGI. <laughs> so it, it's kind of interesting that it's like it's on the cusp of those two worlds. And whereas, as Andrew said, Gladiator does it seamlessly. This reminds you of how awful both of those like things can be when they're not done well yeah 
Uh, and again, other than that, only other thing really to note about it is the fact that it is, um, it was part of the steroidization of, like, Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking, where Hollywood was trying to pack the summer full of movies. Uh, there were 40 movies released in the three months of April, May, and June uh, in the year 2000. Uh, it was one of the big failures of the year 2000, along with other bottom 100 stalwart Battlefield Earth. But again, this was a movie that was pushed to early April because they assumed that it was going to be so successful it would just keep making money through the summer. Their plan was to release it early in April and hope that it would just keep churning money over and over and over again. Uh, and then, of course, it, it sank like a Flintstone, if you will. Mm. Uh, but it is an example of how, like, again, the, the kind of summer months were getting bigger and more bloated and kind of stuffed and how blockbuster filmmaking at the end of the 90s was, was just kind of like reaching a point where it was going to explode. And again, we're just a couple of months away from X-Men. And that kind of changes everything, I think. Mm. Right, Andrew, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed with regards to Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas? Well, there, 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 uh, we mentioned the casino reference. There was also the Some Like It Hot reference. where um, Oh, they we, dress up we, as showgirls. Yeah, we briefly have um, uh, Fred and Barney as, 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 as showgirls. As Rock Vegas showgirls. Yeah. That was, I guess it was but following the trend of uh, cheap gags. Oh, well, let's stick two men in dresses and make them dance for a minute well, again, um, again that's the weird it's it's the 90s kind of like that 90s and kind of like 50s and 60s nostalgia thing where it's like let's go back mm -hmm. and kind of like bring back all this stuff from again the Forrest Gump-esque stuff where it's like yeah the kind of the, the weird conservatism of 90s pop culture I think in some ways yeah men in dresses are hilarious <laughs> yeah and you're not you know you're laughing at the idea of men in dresses these burly men in dresses as well. yeah it's Cheap gag. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that's again. If you, the David, the problem is that you didn't have enough writers. Yeah, no, like, you're if right. You had had like another twenty writers, maybe even just another like twenty five writers. They could have really just pushed it across the line. Injected more nuance into the scene. <laughs> in, in in terms of more of the nonsense that we do, like most weeks. Um, Inappropriate smoking, I guess, is the is the smoking advertisements that they used to do, <laughs> and food waste is is Dino, Dino. Mm. completely like um, destroys a very nice um, uh, spread, and um, it's it's <laughs> it's pretty much all his fault. Like you 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 can't really put it on anybody else. It's not a combination of him and somebody uh, somebody else. No, it's it's. It's um, it's appalling the amount of food that this this ways. I quite like the practical Dino from the Creature Shop. I the CGI one is a monstrosity. I think. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, no. it, it kind of tries to do both, as you mentioned earlier, and it doesn't quite work. Um, and there's a weird moment at the end where the Great Kazoo flirts with Dino, uh, mm. or like it would never work uh, out. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love the yeah, sorry. You could almost you could hear my brains resigning. I mean, <laughs> um, I I do want to quote like from the announcement that this film was coming in May 1998. Um, you know, obviously, like the press are very excited. The Universal sent out a statement. Here is is what a Universal spokesman had to say about what would distinguish Viva Rock Vegas from the Flintstones 1994. A Universal spokesman said the film will have, quote, a different look from the original. Instead of a 
quote, natural rock setting, unquote, for instance, the prequel's bedrock will feature glittering gem-like stones, end quote. That was like Universal's unique selling point for we are making a sequel to the Flintstones. What they didn't if... didn't do that, though, did they? No, no, I don't, I don't think they did. I don't think they even got and that far. Plus, like, why should anyone be excited about that? Yeah, yeah no, I, I really want to see glittering gem-like stones in a movie. Like, I like the Flintstones 994, but you know what it, what it didn't have? Glittering gem-like stones. So, hey, hey, people, do, do we have any good ideas? It's like, no, that's oh, fine. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, so um, let, let's, like, just have, like, a idea. Um and that's the market. Look, this press release has to go out. Steven Spielberg <laughs> wants this movie made. I mean, somebody's got to send this press Quick, release you out. you tree. Give me three words. <laughs> <laughs> Glittering gem stones. Oh. Boom. Uh, that's it. We're ordering Ty for the writer's room, right? <laughs> and you know what? Because there's only four of us, we get like eight times as much Ty. <laughs> All right. I think that then kind of wraps it up. What we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. Something they are enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that maybe unrelated to the movie brings them joy in these uncertain times. So to give David a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. This is going to be fairly light. I, like watching this, watching movies often makes you kind of think of things and kind of draw connections with things that you enjoy. I was curious when I saw that it was a brian wilson um this isn't love there is a version alive at the roxy um version of that song this isn't love including an introduction where he's like hey um this movie's gonna be gonna be used in a movie next year a flintstones movie can you believe that it's gonna be in a movie isn't that cool Okay, here it is. This is this is in love, and it's actually it's actually really good. It it, it the the version in the movie is terrible. Um, I think it's intentionally terrible. Um, I don't but- know. It's no new radicals. You get what you give. <laughs> oh yes. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah there's a montage, a very nineties music drop in the montage to that song. That is incredible. Yeah. That 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 they use this. I wouldn't have guessed that. I I just assumed that. They they um, filmed it before they had gotten rid of the sets for the first movie, <laughs> and 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 that like they were they were they were paying less for the actors and kind of like paying like having less writers, and I was like, no, there's no way this movie is expensive. Um, but but yeah, it turns out yeah, they, seeing that the that that very kind of like popular, probably expensive song, yeah. Um, <laughs> was a bit jarring. Um, I was like, wow, it, they got this. If it came out two years later, do you think it would be All-Star by Smash Mouth? <laughs> <laughs> I think All-Star would be probably a better fit. But it, <laughs> like, like, like it was a very joyous moment that is captured quite well in that song. I'll, 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 I'll give it that. Also, I, w- I, w- I, w- I want to kind of plug something that doesn't really exist, which is um, <laughs> I feel that Flintstones should be a theme park. I think there, there, there have been attempts um, at it. There is a moment where they're at a fairground at the at the beginning, and I'm like, "This is what this should be. <laughs> this is this yeah. this this is what like um, like I feel like people would enjoy 
kind of like as 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 a Flintstones experience, a Universal theme parks kind of pretty like much. Flintstones. Yeah, I did think the animatronics, the the puppets, look more like theme park um, exactly. uh, attractions as opposed to yeah. Actual dinosaurs. Yeah, Actual did. dinosaurs. <laughs> Actually, yeah, it kind of felt like a theme park movie and that you were like stepping into a theme park where the... the, the where the, Mark Addy couldn't break character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where, 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 where it's kind of like student actors and they're all kind of playing. Yeah. Oh, sorry, no, no. Your Stephen Baldwin is like your Sunday Barney yeah. Rubble. He's, like, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's the guy we don't get. He's like the third choice on the roster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There have been a couple of attempts. There was a Bedrock, Arizona, and there was also a Bedrock, South Dakota. But they seem to be kind of places where they were essentially like sets, you know, where you have like the Flintstones house and uh, and it's like like a like a village rather than a theme park as such. And it's like sit in the chair that Fred Flintstone might have sat if this was where it was but it was a cartoon <laughs> and, it, and it, um, I'd say and it wasn't live action um, Our, yeah or, and, and, and then it's like and, and there's also like a coffee shop <laughs> and some off-brand merchandise are you aware of the Flintstone house Andrew I am not I was aware of Bedrock um, Arizona and Bedrock South Dakota which I think closed in like 2015 and maybe 2010 or 2019 or something basically it was built i think in 1976 by the architect william nicholson and it wasn't built as a flintstones house it was built as like a modern piece of modern architecture in 1976 uh but it basically it was taken over by uh some sort of billionaire i'm trying to i'm trying to get her name here but basically she was i believe she owned like a publishing house um or some sort of early news company or whatever and she decided to uh remodel the house uh, to make it look like uh, the Flintstones house. In late 2017, new owners installed large oxidized steel sculptures of dinosaurs, a woolly mammoth, a giraffe, and Fred Flintstone in the yard. The house was unpopular with some neighbors and inspired the formation of a local architectural review board. In <laughs> March 2019, the town of Hillsborough filed a complaint against the current owner of the house, Florence Fang. Um, who is owner of the San Francisco Examiner and a fundraiser for the Republican Party, just in case we're wondering here. Uh, in March 2019, Fang retained the law offices of former San Francisco mayor, mayor Joseph L. Alioto to respond to the complaint. The lawsuit was settled in June 2021, allowing the modifications to stay, with Fang receiving $125,000 from the city for her emotional distress. Uh, there are some photos. We will include them in the show notes. They are something to behold. <laughs> Zoom in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sorry, a Andrew. Andrew's looking at the, the thing right now. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So that is that is that is a thing that actually exists. Sorry. Sorry to, to take away from your Flintstones uh, theme park <laughs> idea to go on a tangent upon a tangent. Yeah. That's another wasted opportunity. <laughs> That should be open to the public. It should be made like San Francisco should have like they shouldn't have like a planning complaint. They should have zoned it for public use. <laughs> this is this is the people's house now. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's my that's my plug for some enterprising uh, 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 businessman with with like billions of dollars. <laughs> the, yeah. Probably a safer idea than something like Jurassic Park, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Inside the derelict Flintstones theme park being sold for $2 million. 
So, I mean, it's only $2 million. You can have your own derelict Flintstones theme park. How much uh, was it worth before they made all those modifications? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This is, this is a separate theme park. This is the one in the Grand Canyon. Oh. It's the one of the ones you mentioned. Oh. So you can buy it. For I bet it's haunted. <laughs> oh, yes. No, but that's I okay. saw that. I saw that you can buy the Arizona Bedrock uh, for, for, for $2 million. So we, uh, I mean, well, that, that's, that's why you need the crossover with those stupid kids, David. It's for Route 62. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like the owners of the Flintstone theme park are like scaring up insurance money or something like that. Mm, like dressing oh up God. as ghosts. Um, Everything's connected. But David, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Um, well, I suppose my link to the Flintstones with my recommendation is tenuous. So, and Margaret does the uh, Viva Rock Vegas, the song in, in this film. And Margaret appeared in Bye Bye Birdie. Bye Bye Birdie appears in Mad Men. Flintstones <laughs> aired in the 60s. <laughs> Mad Men set in the 60s. I'm recommending Mad Men um, because I'm <laughs> currently um, rewatching it with my boyfriend. And I every time I watch it, I'm kind of blown away by how rich the characterizations are. Um, and how gorgeous the production design is. I think it's it's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. So if you haven't seen it, please watch Mad Men. Um, I suppose another thing, I'm I'm reading something at the a book at the moment called All Down in Darkness Wide, which is um, very beautifully written. Uh, the prose is very, um, oh, it's very rich. You can tell it was written by a poet. It's by Sean Hewitt. Um, it's a memoir. It's about homophobia. It's about, it's really good. So those are my two recommendations <laughs> for, uh, for the podcast. I want to ask you a, rec- a, a question about the recommendation. I've watched the first six series of Mad Men and then I think I saw like trailers for the seventh season and it appeared to be the 70s. <laughs> I was like, I'm out. I'm fuck that. No, 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 no. Like, like any show like that. Like I would watch Heartbeat if it was on. Um, unless... It was the seventies. I was like, "Why would you do that?" There's no need for for you to 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 go into a new decade. Um, it's a, like 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 now we like the like, absurdest parody uh, of Mad Men, where they reach like like thirty first, nineteen sixty nine, and the clock just keeps ticking back a second. Oh my god! Same, like uh, same great show. The end of uh, Twin Peaks: The Return. Yeah, uh, <laughs> all the yeah, characters just look at the camera. Yeah. Uh, we live inside a dream. <laughs> like you, you, conceivably, all of that could have happened in the one decade, right? All right. Well, no, probably. Not. I feel. I feel like it's probably thematically relevant that Mad Men, a show that is explicitly about the '60s, in its final season tackles the end of the '60s, and also it is only like eight you episodes. The end without okay. going into the '70s. <laughs> Nobody cares about the seventies. Most of last season is set in nineteen sixty nine. I think most of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love how conceptually against like this Andrew is. It's just like I don't. But, but if you have to do do a photo like, montage. People like, like sixties things. <laughs> like the, you know, to just kind of you know. They're, 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 anyway, sorry that that put me off. So t- tell me. Seriously, that was. Tell me that. Tell me. <laughs> tell me that actually the seventh season is the best. And I, that, that there's no drop down. And in spite of my reservations, I, like I'm a fool. I, I love by the way that like David, who is actually just like so, so. Is that the law in Sweden? Is like wait, wait. Is this is this serious? Is this is this like the Sweden thing? <laughs> I can tell you, David. This is entirely serious. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> Good god! 
<laughs> How arbitrary. <laughs> All right. So, um, I, I, again, I, I need to finish Mad Men. I think I got about five seasons in and again got distracted by pretty swirly things. Um, but it okay. is an excellently written show and it does look fantastic. Um, so I got further than you. You did. I know. Yeah. Well, you, you got like six episodes into Breaking Bad. So it balances out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Andrew didn't like Breaking Bad because well, it's also not set in the 60s. two and a half seasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, you have a hard time consuming media. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is this is why I was very excited when David picked a, a, a adaptation of a cartoon from the 60s. I was like, I can sell Andrew on this. Um, yeah, yeah. And then uh, in terms recommendations from myself um i recommended earlier it is worth shouting out josie and the pussycats uh as part of research for this i watched a whole bunch of the hannah barbera and again constructing that most important movie ever made narrative for the flintstones in viva rock vegas putting it in its cultural context i rewatched or i watched for the first time josie and the pussycats and that is an amazing movie i am just so glad that that movie exists it is a delight um featuring like such wonderful dialogue as what are you even doing here it's it's because i was in the comic what what nothing never mind um it is it is just a delight uh from beginning to end uh in terms of other stuff i mean tangentially related to this velma is launching on hbo max uh a week ago as this is releasing fine i feel like i would like it more if it were like a single 30 minute short instead of like a five hour tv event but that is the world in which we live and because Andrew just insulted the 70s, um, <laughs> I'm going to recommend uh, a couple of shows that are that are now releasing. The Last of Us is on HBO uh, now. It is very worth seeking out. It's also on Sky Atlantic. That is a adaptation of the video game that is very popular. I hear it's a very good video game. It is a very good TV show. In particular, the third episode is one of the best episodes of television I've seen in a very long time. And then because Andrew insulted the 70s, Ryan Johnson has a new murder mystery TV show called Poker Face coming out that stars Natasha Lyonne. It is modeled on both the 70s detective show Columbo and the 70s wandering adventure shows like Kung Fu, like The Incredible Hulk, like The Fugitive, those kinds of shows. Uh, it is a different story every week. Uh, it is entirely episodic. It has a fantastic guest cast, including people like, say, Ellen Barkin, Adrian Brody, Ron Perlman, uh, St Stephanie Honsu, uh, Hong Chow is in there as well, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, it's just a joy to watch. Uh, Lil Ray Howery is in there as well. I, I had a really, really good time. I've seen most of the first season. Uh, it's just a joy to watch. That is on Peacock in the States. I do not believe it has a distribution deal in Ireland or the UK, uh, but keep an eye out for that. So those Lots are... Lots of lava lamps, shag carpets, that sort of thing. I mean, there there is literally an episode that unfolds in an old folks' home involving a pair of seventies radicals played by like Judith Light um, and S. I can't remember the other actor's name. Tie dye. <laughs> a lot of tie dye. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. Like it's it's it takes you back to the time when heroes on TV shows. Like there's a lot of inappropriate smoking and drinking. It is a very 70s TV show and that Natasha Lyonne is mostly smoking cigarettes, wearing sunglasses and drinking cans of Heineken while solving these cases. And I'm like, I, you know what? I missed the point where TV heroes could be bad influences on me. Yeah. Uh, I missed they the day. They should be selling Winston cigarettes. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. I do kind of want, I do want the, the, like the season finale to have a post-credit scene where she, she shills for cigarettes. Um, but yes, so I wholeheartedly recommend that. All right then. So David, where are you at? What you up to? Where can we find you? Um, I'm always chipping away at different things. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Dex underscore Jetster. 
Um, it's I took my username from the very beautiful, very memorable character of uh, uh, Dex Jester from Attack of the Clones, the Obi Wan Nobis. He's the guy who owns friend. the owns diner. The diner. Right. Mm-hmm. Owns the diner. Obi Wan, and he like, yeah, gives him a hug. Yeah, oh, he does stand out. He stood out to me. Um, Absolutely. Uh, uh, I have a portfolio website. It's um, david monhancom I think. It took me a long time to come up with that. Um, we'll include in the show notes. Um, thank you. Um, and um, yeah, uh, sometimes I write film criticism. Sometimes I do um, film interviews. So just keep an eye on those. For those. There, <laughs> anything coming up that you'd like to draw attention to? Is there anything that you've kind of done recently that you want to shout out? Um, let me think. Um, not to put you on the spot. Not to... No. Okay. <laughs> I, I like that I, admi- I admire that I like I admire all, the commitment all of it yeah, yeah. Um, alright then and uh, you can follow the podcast we're on uh, Twitter at at the 250 we're on Stitcher on SoundCloud on iTunes wherever good podcasts are found uh, as we mentioned last week for the start of 2022 we are going up uh, bi-weekly report nightly so basically, uh, that means that this will be on the feed for Bi-weekly two Bi-weekly makes it feel like the, there's going to be two yeah, each no, week. I, I, yeah, that's why I corrected myself. <laughs> I, I made a point when I introduced us to introduce it as the fortnightly Fortnite yeah. show. I made that mistake last week and regretted not editing still, it out. We'll still have 52 episodes this year. We will, somehow. somehow. Um, it, you, you might think that we're going to do something very stupid that and completely irrational. That makes no sense. That's going to keep the workload exactly the same as it was for no gain whatsoever. We have extra weeks planned for the end of <laughs> yeah. the year. I mean... <laughs> We, we looked at like 2020 that was the year that lasted like 100 weeks and we figured 2022 we're 2023 we're going to measure it out it'll take you know probably about you know 70 weeks ish right <laughs> um but yeah so we will we will be releasing 52 episodes this year we hope um somehow <laughs> this is such a stupid idea so i stupid. kind of <laughs> <laughs> um all, all right we'll be back in a fortnight uh, with the wonderful Jonathan Victory will be joining us. Uh, he'll be talking about his live stage show, but he will also be talking to us uh, about Dragon Ball Evolution. We are apparently what we do in the early parts of any given year is we just talk about terrible movies all the time <laughs> because people want to talk about terrible movies. But we'll be talking about James Wan's Dragon Ball Evolution, the adaptation of the beloved anime, which I am absolutely sure respects the source material. Uh, and kind of tackles it in a tasteful, dignified, visually and narrative compelling way. So check back in two weeks. I will be there. Thank you so much, David, for this. This has Thank been a you, David. Thank you for having me on the pod. Our, our, um, our pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you were putting up with that with the weird uh conversation about the 70s <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, to, be, to wrap my head around it <laughs> to be clear i i like when things are in the 70s i don't like when things move from the 60s to the 70s oh okay okay, okay. so it's the transition that's the yeah i love yeah. that we wrapped up the podcast but we like, now i find up the, the 60s kind of comfortable or something <laughs> and if a show is there it kind of has that 60s appeal that it loses completely. So, I'm sure. There, I'm sure there is a class of people who are like, "Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they renew it for another season because I really want to see this in the seventies." I'm I, not like, that do, guy. Do you feel that way about other shows? So, like shows, for example, the transition, like over that nine eleven bump. So things like the first couple of seasons, The West Wing, then nine eleven happens and the show changes. Like, do you have that similar vibe? Like where it's just like no. It, it, I hate it when 9-11 happens um, and a show changes because that's obviously the I, most important headline to have there, right? 
I too hate it when 9 11 happens. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like it when the 90s happens. Okay, so like, like if, I, you're, if, I, if you're watching I, an 80s late yeah, 80s show yeah. and you're like, the Berlin Wall is about like, to fall, baby. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like this. <laughs> I think. The Simpsons was like at its most popular when it was also kind of like not very good, right? The, the, mean, as, like, as in like the beloved Simpsons episodes aren't like it's it's, it's, it's peak in popularity. It's peak in terms of like its cultural imprint and the Bartman and all of that sort of stuff. I feel like that kind of overlaps with the early seasons. That overlaps with like the season four, season five, season six, right? The Bartman is two thousand is like the early one, right? That's, that's yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I, I'm 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 saying like the 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 start of kind of the nineties was, yeah. was 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 kind of when when Simpsons started. So, um, David, does this make any more sense? Sorry, to you? <laughs> no, no, no. I I I just yeah. I, I'm you forced me to try and t- talk about how I felt about when other things happen. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I no, I, it's, it's good. I, like, I I, I I feel like I have a more holistic picture. Like, you don't like going from the sixties to the seventies, but you do like going from the eighties to the nineties. I'm not sure how you feel about going from the nineties to like the two thousands, but it, it's I just piecing it all together. <laughs> Do you feel like you have a more holistic view, <laughs> No. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, Charlie Day with the, with the whiteboard. Listeners couldn't see, but I was visualizing it in my mind, with, using my like mm. thumbs and forefingers to map out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, all right. I, take care. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks so much, Thank you. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. bye.